Hello and welcome to The Polling Perspective, a podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at public opinion polling and what's going on in politics today through a series of informal conversations between experts in the field. I'm your host, Doug Schwartz, and I've been directing the Quinnipiac University Poll since 1994. Today, we're going to talk to Kristen Soltis Anderson, who is the co-founder of Echelon Insights. Over the next hour or so, we talk about everything from the 2016 election to polling outliers today. We even talk about how she started her own business. I enjoyed my conversation with Kristen, and I hope you do too. Kristen, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you. You are like the perfect guest uh, right now for me to have as we're just a few weeks before the election and everybody is talking about polling and politics and there are just so many things that I want to um, talk with you about. But I thought before we just sort of jump full speed into what's going on in the world of polling and politics, I wanted to sort of give our listeners a little bit of background on how you got into polling uh, when you got the, the polling bug, I know that you were sort of a trailblazer when it came to both being on TV as a pollster when I never saw pollsters on TV. And all of a sudden you're on Morning Joe and this week with, you know, Stephanopoulos. I'm like, oh, my God, a pollster is like regular on TV. And then I, I you know, want to talk about your polling podcast. Again, something else that you were a trailblazer on. Nobody was doing polling podcasts. And truth be told, you know, I got the idea for this polling podcast from you guys. Oh, that's so great to hear. Oh, that warms my heart. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you get the polling bug? Yeah. So my, my polling story starts in high school. I was a debate team kid. I was really interested in politics. And when I went to college, I majored in political science. And uh, But still, I just had this bug to get to Washington, D.C. I had watched too much West Wing. I was that <laughs> kid. And so I came to D.C. And then I arrived in the spring of 2005, which I was excited to come to D.C. then because you had the inauguration. Um, George W. Bush was being sworn in for his second term. It just seemed like it was going to be this exciting time with a lot going on. But it turns out if you're interested in campaigns, that's a terrible time to come intern because there's nothing going on in the campaign world. So I interned at the NRCC, which is the National Republican Congressional Committee, which uh, basically handles campaigns for House races, Republican campaigns for, for House of Representatives. And so there was nothing to do then but raise money. So I got put in the campaign finance division as an intern, updating spreadsheets and you know, monitoring when members of Congress would come to make fundraising phone calls. And it was a real eye opener to how politics actually works. And it also gave me, I began having a lot of questions about how our government works, how politics works that could be answered quantitatively. So which members of Congress are raising money for the party committee? And is there any relationship between that and which committees they're on or how long they've been in office and those sorts of questions. And so just the idea of being able to study politics quantitatively at all became really interesting to me. But I had always thought of myself more as a verbal person. I wanted to be a press secretary, a speechwriter. When I watched The West Wing, the characters that I wanted to be were, 
you know, Ainsley Hayes, who's this lawyer who goes on TV and absolutely fillets Rob Lowe's character in her first episode in a cable news debate. You know, that was what I wanted to do. And so I kind of got nudged by um, one of the, the women at the NRCC with me. She said, you know, I know of a job opening at a polling firm. They need someone who will update spreadsheets and, you know, check PowerPoint decks and answer phones and all that. Um, but if you like the math side of things and, and you're at all interested in that and an Excel spreadsheet doesn't terrify you and what have you, but you're also really interested in messaging and the verbal side of politics and persuasion and communication, then polling is perfect because it's the, it's the intersection of those two worlds. So I took a job uh, at a polling firm called the Winston Group on the, the Republican side of the aisle uh, run by a great guy, Dave Winston. He had been one of Newt Gingrich's big strategists um, and he had, had been running his firm for a couple of years. And so I came in there as a very junior person and I learned the trade from him. And eight years later, you know, went and started my own uh, company, the Echelon Insights, which we've now been around for about a little over six years. Uh, and the, the rest is history. You know, I, a lot of folks will drift in and out of the polling world. I, I've had a ton of folks that I've worked with who they come, they spend a little time working in polling and then they go out and they work on campaigns or they go work in marketing or they go work, uh, you know, for uh, a business consulting company. But I've just loved staying in the research world itself because it gives me raw material and new knowledge that other people don't have that I can then analyze and formulate into something new. I, I think, you know, a lot of punditry these days is folks talking about their gut feelings. Uh, and I like polling because it lets me bring to a conversation something that is new and unique and rooted in reality. Uh, hopefully, if the poll is done well, rooted in reality. Um, that actually advances the conversation and hopefully makes the people at home smarter. So I, that's why I've, I've found that the world of polling has been, a, I've enjoyed it so much and it meshes so well with other things like going on television, as you mentioned, et cetera. I, there are so many different things you can do with it as a career. You know, I wanted to follow up on, on your experience starting your own business because that's pretty brave. I have to say, you know, I've been at Quinnipiac for a very long time. This has been my pretty much my whole career has been at Quinnipiac 25 years. I've loved it here. And, you know, I think it's so brave, frankly, for somebody in what we do to start up their own business because from the stories that I hear, it ain't easy at all to start from nothing and get clients. What was that like? Yeah. So this was a, uh, I, I embarked on the, the journey of entrepreneurship in uh, 2014. So I had been with uh, Winston Group for a long time and I, I just loved everybody there and I had learned so much. Um, and then I got uh, a book deal to write this book called The Selfie Vote, all about young voters and where I thought the millennial generation was taking America politically. And I kept thinking, okay, I can write this book and work full time and do all these other things. This will be okay. And I got about a month into the book writing process and I did not have very many words saved in a Word document. <laughs> it became clear to me that that was probably not going to work out. Uh, so it just seemed to me like the right moment to say, okay, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to work on this book for you know two or three months. I've saved up some money and then I'll figure out what I want to do next. But I think now's time for a change. Uh, and so I left Winston Group and I, I began working on the book a little bit and I was immediately bored. Uh, not bored with writing the book, but I just, 
suddenly I didn't have enough things that, that I was doing in my life. And I was eager and hungry to get back into the polling world in some fashion. And I also, over the years, I had been on enough panels and conference discussions and what have you with a man named Patrick Ruffini, who is a, another political consultant working more in the digital and data space. And he and I seem to be really in sync on our views about where the, the worlds of polling and data and social media analysis were all headed and that they were all headed in a similar direction. The technology was changing the way we did a lot of those things or making some of those things possible, social media analysis, et cetera. But if you're using a poll to, you know, I'll give you an example. In a poll, there's a question that pollsters ask all the time. Have you seen, read or heard anything about X, Y or Z lately? You know, open ended questions. What are people talking about? What's on their radar? Well, can you look at what people are Googling to get some insight into that? Can you look at what people are posting on social media to get some insight into that? It's not a representative sample. It's not a replacement for polling at all, but it could be supplemental information. And shouldn't you be taking all of that into consideration when you're making a decision? So we decided we've got this idea for a firm that's going to be like polling plus, polling plus all these other things that we think are very nicely married to the world of polling. Um, but as you mentioned, it's really scary to start your own business. You know, I, I had never done it before. And so it's like, well, what paperwork do we need to fill out? Patrick is like, no, 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 it's easy. You Like getting a tax ID number is easy. Like filing to be a LLC in the state of Virginia or Commonwealth of Virginia is not hard. So, you know, once you sort of, in some ways, it's kind of like registering to vote. Like if you've never done it, it may seem really intimidating. And oh my gosh, what are the deadlines? And what's the paperwork you have to fill out? But then once you do it, you're like, oh, that wasn't, that was really easy. And now I'm a voter. Now I'm in it. So I think starting a business is kind of the same way. You've got to get over those first few hurdles, things like, where are we going to have our offices? What are we going to call ourselves? You know, you have to do a lot when it comes to running a business that is not your core skill set. I would say the first six months of working at Echelon, less than 50% of my time was spent on things that were actually polling. And the rest of things were spent on, how do I hire good talent? How do we go and market ourselves? You know, th those sorts of things. So I had to build a lot of new skill sets. But it's been such a totally rewarding journey. And I think going into business with someone who has a complementary set of skills from you, who adds things that you can't do yourself or you're not as good at, um, is a really, like, that's a huge piece of advice I give to anyone who's thinking about starting a business, is go into business with someone else who you trust, who you think is a good person, who fundamentally has the same kind of values that you do, because that's really important in business, but has a very different skill set. So they're adding something to the business that you couldn't do yourself. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I think that there's a perception out there that campaign pollsters, you know, that, that that's what they do is just work on campaigns. But I learned several years ago that the reality is most of your work probably is not about politics. I mean, it might be in your case, and that's why I'm driving at is I'm curious because I heard like 90% of sort of the business of what of campaign pollsters is actually the private corporate work or other kinds of private interests that it's not the politics. In your case, is it the politics or is it more the private stuff? I think of the politics to corporate work question on more of a spectrum rather than a like a binary, is it corporate or is it political? Um, especially these days when so many people are looking at what brands are doing about engaging on social and cultural issues. Um, you know, if a brand is trying to, you know, they're lobbying for something on the Hill, is that going to affect people's likelihood to buy their product or what have you? These are all important questions. 
I would say of the people who do polling on campaigns, the balance of my business is probably much more heavily weighted toward corporate. I, I really only do like a handful of things that are kind of pure political each election cycle. Um, there are folks that are in the Republican polling world who are great at what they do, and they have been doing this for decades. Um, and this is like the high season for them where they will not sleep for weeks at a time as they're finishing up these final tracking polls. But in Echelon, I think most, the vast majority of our business, as you mentioned, is on the corporate side. We do a handful of, of different campaign things or we work for outside groups and PACs because, you know, it's good to stay in the game, if you will, and to, uh, you know, that you get those really interesting insights. But a lot of what people don't realize is they think of polling as the horse race. Who's up, who's down? Do you have the ballot correct? Biden's up by eight, Biden's up by nine, whatever that looks like. And that's one question on a poll that probably contains 50 questions. So what are the other 49 questions? Okay, let's say 10 of those are demographics. What are the other 39 questions? Um, you know, things about, okay, even if neither of these are perfect, which do you agree with more? Statements that push people to make tough choices between competing values. Um, what are their priorities? What are the things that they react well to or not in terms of language? Those are all of the things that the rest of a survey gets at. And that is what I would say I spend the vast majority of my time working on is those kinds of questions um, about people's values and priorities and beliefs about um, politics and policy and how the world works, much less so that who do they plan to vote for. Gotcha. Um, and I do want to sort of delve into these other questions that, you know, I've, I share the same view as you that we'll put out you know, a poll where we will ask, like you said, you know, 20, 30, 40 questions beyond the horse race. And 90% of the time, all I see covered is that one number. That's yeah. all anybody wants to talk about is that one number. I'm like, what about all these other great questions on the issues and the traits of the candidates? And where is that being reported? I wish we could see more of that. So I, I'm with you there. But before I, I we jump into the polls, as I'm talking to you, I wanted to just understand better and sort of highlight how the way you and Margie, a Democratic pollster, came together on this podcast, because I feel like it illustrates sort of the best uh, of us, which is like you can have these civilized, great conversations with somebody, even if they are diametrically opposite of you in terms of policy, that you turn on the TV and you see Republicans and Democrats yelling at each other and you guys just made it work that you both have such a nice way of talking about polling and politics. Like, how did that all happen? I just, I think it was a great podcast. Oh, well, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And, and for any of your listeners who did not have an opportunity to be part of the pollsters audience back when we were making shows, um, I, I did a podcast for over five years with Margie O'Meara, a Democratic pollster. Um, she and I had been familiar with each other because the polling world's not that big. Uh, and actually, you know, you mentioned before about the, what's the balance of the business you do, political versus corporate. Outside of pure political campaigns, most organizations, unless you're talking like a conservative think tank or something like that, if it's a corporate group or a nonprofit group or a trade association, they usually want a nonpartisan look at an issue. Now, being a Republican pollster doesn't mean I have a Republican lens on when I'm viewing things overtly. I'm not trying to put my thumb on the scale. It just means that I tend to work for causes on the right of center. Um, but we are all part, you know, our biases can be baked into how we function. And so there may be things I may write a question one way and Margie may go, hey, if you use that language, 
Democrats are going to balk at it because they're going to say, you can't, don't, it's not illegal immigrants, it's undocumented immigrants or something like that. That's an example of where a Republican and a Democrat might word a question differently. So Margie and I had worked on projects before. Um, There are plenty of Democratic pollsters with whom I have a great relationship because in a way we're not really competitors. We, you know, we, we are not fighting for business against each other. We are often partnered together getting business together. Um, and Margie was somebody that I, that I had known from that world. She actually gave me a ton of good advice before I even started my own firm, Echelon, because she had started her own firm at one point. Um, so we, we'd had a friendship and we, we wound up doing NPR's State of the Union coverage in 2015 together. And when we left that radio booth at midnight or whatever time it was, we're walking to get in our cabs and Ubers. And she goes, you know, I've got an idea. Let's get coffee next week. I want to run something by you. And this was the time when I think Serial, that famous podcast, I think Serial had not yet come out or was just getting famous. So podcasting renaissance or this big surge in interest was just getting underway. And she said, there really aren't that, there's no podcast about polling. There's definitely no bipartisan shows out there, especially not really hosted by women. So I think there's a real opportunity here. Um, our first couple of episodes were real rough. They were only, you know, 15, 20 minutes. But eventually over time, you get into the rhythm of, okay, what's the structure of our show going to be? You realize that listeners really like when there's some kind of predictability to the show. Okay, I know in the first five minutes it's going to be X. And then I know the next 10 minutes they're going to do Y and then it'll end on Z. Um, getting into that, figuring out what felt right for us, you know, took a couple of months. But really, the 2016 election became this moment when people were so interested in data and polls and were so on edge about what might happen. And then after the election, so curious about what went wrong and wanting to understand this voodoo that the polling industry does better, um, that we were just kind of in the right place at the right time. I think what also made it possible for Margie and I to have this great rapport and these civil discussions was two things. One, having that pre-existing friendship. I think when you know someone personally, you are more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt. She, I could go off on a rant about how I think that, you know, so I don't love socialism. And she knows that it's not because I want to see economic inequality. Like she knows that I, I'm not a bad person. Um, similarly, you know, she could go off on, on rants about issues that matter to her. And I know, like, I know that it's not because Margie just doesn't like the Constitution or something like that. We just have a fundamental disagreement about how you might apply it. Um, so I think having that personal friendship is so important because it lets you disagree. What's the phrase? Disagree without being disagreeable. I never once would question like the values that drive Margie's opinions or the fact that she's a good person and is intellectually honest and, and wants good things for this country. And that that helps. But I also think that it is unique to the polling world because we consistently are coming back to the data. So if she and I disagree on an issue, I'm trying to think of a big one that where she and I are just like, I mean, there, there are plenty where she and I are, are on different sides, but as long as you're coming back to, okay, it's not about what you think and it's not about what I think, it's about what we think about the data. And she may see something different in the data than I see because we're looking for different things or we have different worldviews. Um, but ultimately, being rooted in what the polls say gives you an anchor to come back to that is just more objective, less emotional, whatever that is. And that's why I think a polling show was uniquely suited to facilitating pleasant, non-combative, bipartisan discussion uh, in a way that a show that isn't rooted in polling might struggle to do. I agree 100% with you uh, regarding the relationships in the polling world. And it does seem like pollsters on the whole really do get along very well. Um, in my 
podcast with Scott Keeter, we talked about APOR, and I know I've seen you at APOR, and that it's a great spirit, if you will, that everyone, different backgrounds, you have your academic pollsters, your government pollsters, your news pollsters, partisan pollsters, everyone seems to just get together and get along really well, enjoy the sharing of information. You know, and I've really enjoyed, you know, my career in terms of being able to talk to folks like you, talk to other, you know, news pollsters. Um, but where I'm heading with this is while all of that on the whole has been very good, I wanted to sort of segue into what happens in the Twitter world when you you don't have these relationships with other pollsters, that they don't know you, you don't know them, they don't like your data. And people just say the craziest things sometimes. And <laughs> I just sort of want, this is sort of my segue into, you know, our world of polling. And yesterday we came out with a poll and I've seen this before. It wasn't the first time you come out with numbers and people say, oh, my God, I didn't expect that. That can't be right. You know, forget about that. And some of it does come from partisan pollsters. Some, but again, it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's both sides. And again, on the whole, some of my best relationships with pollsters are with campaign pollsters um, th that I know. And we, we talk about, you know, sort of getting under the hood and how we do what we do. And it's all good. But then there are other pollsters that I don't even know. They tend to be partisan pollsters that on Twitter will get on there. They don't like your numbers. I don't really get it that they just c come out without any sort of a basis of saying, well, I disagree because, you know, I don't agree with RDD or I don't agree with this methodology, whatever it is there. It's just, no, that, that number can't be right. Dismissed by. Um, and then I noticed you were on Twitter yesterday and usually I, I love your dog pictures. That's usually what I'm, I'm seeing. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, wow, Kristen is weighing in on a big picture polling thing. I don't know if it's related to sort of some of the um, criticism that we're getting on Twitter. And I don't want to exaggerate the criticism. I mean, it, it was, wasn't like it was widespread, but it was a few. And I noticed it. And I was like, this is interesting. I wonder if Kristen is weighing in here saying people are responding emotionally, not looking really at the data. Um, and... You know, was that in reaction to what was happening to us yesterday? Well, it, it was it was in reaction to a lot of things. So you'd had a handful of polls come out over the last couple of days. I think it began with the NBC Wall Street Journal one that had Biden up by was it 13 or 14. And then the CNN one came out that had him up by something like that. And look, that was a finding that was very that was different than what the polling averages had shown at that point. And so when you see one number that looks very different from everything else that's come out, you should think of it as this is going to be one of two things. This is going to be an outlier or it's the beginning of a new trend. And we don't know the answer to that yet. So don't panic and wait for further data. Um, and that's how I always, whenever a poll comes out that it diverges from the norm, that's not a bad thing. They're definitely not hurting. They're not sitting on data that is potentially controversial. Good. Pollsters should not sit on data. But I, I always like to wait and see. But it seemed as though once we had NBC Wall Street Journal and then we had CNN and then like the Fox poll came out last night again with Biden up, I think, by double digits. Plus, there were a variety of different state polls that had all come out. And it's just like at a certain point, when do we go? Maybe these aren't outliers. Maybe this is a trend. Maybe we need to wait and see more data. Um, but, but that was kind of what was 
driving it was that there were so many folks that were like, oh, this is an outlier. Well, sure, but enough other data that agrees with it, suddenly it's not an outlier anymore. So let's let's just wait. Everybody reserve judgment. And that was where this was coming from. And frankly, it was like a Twitter therapy session for me and for, I, a little bit because I find myself wanting so very much to be purely objective and to be very conscious of when my own emotions are infiltrating my analysis, which was what I was talking about on Twitter. I have felt myself repeatedly through this year being asked, well, who do you think is going to win? I mean, the data are really clearly pointing in one direction. And yet I remember, you know, going back to the pollsters podcast, getting on the train to come back from New York the morning after the election four years ago. I had a, 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 you know, sitting down, taping that podcast with Margie while we were both just in absolute disbelief, her disbelief heightened by the fact that, you know, her candidate, Hillary Clinton, did not win. Me, I did not love either candidate. I was very candid about that on the show. My emotions were purely about, oh my gosh, is the polling industry going to exist in a week? Um, but I, I feel like there's a lot of, and, and we've done polling at Echelon that shows this, that even though the polls overwhelmingly show Biden in commanding position, Trump voters think Trump is going to win. And Biden voters say they're not sure who's going to win. Like, like nobody wants to just take the data that's in front of them and say, maybe this could be right. And I, I'm I'm not criticizing anyone who is skeptical of the polls. I am skeptical of the polls. I worry that we might be missing a shy Trump effect that didn't exist four years ago. I worry that we might be missing voters systematically in some other way because of the pandemic and what turnout is going to look like. And all these states that are doing mail-in ballots that you're going to get thrown out if they're not in the right envelope. I mean, there are tons of things that could go wrong with the polls. I am not saying to take the polls as gospel, but I am saying if you're going to disagree with the polls, have a basis on which to do so. Um, or a a well-supported theory for why they could be wrong rather than just, I don't like this number. So when you talk about dealing with criticism on Twitter, you know, my firm Echelon, we don't put out public data nearly as often as as you guys do. So you all are in the line of fire much more often. Um, But the way I decide how how and when to engage is one, first, just identify anyone that's acting in bad faith or whose name is, whose opinion is not going to change and just ignore it. It's hard to do, but having now like somebody who goes on cable news and talks for a decade, I get a lot of that. Uh, I've become much more able to just tune it out. Um, The other thing though that I do then is if there is a criticism that comes in from someone who I think is acting in good faith and has a platform that is at such a scale where it it does merit a response, I, I try to be unemotional about it. And I really try not to take it personally. Even if their criticism sounds personal, to try to respond in a way that is non-defensive, to just say, look, it appears that we disagree on X. Um, I will tell you there is very little that is more satisfying than when someone kind of criticizes you on Twitter and you can come back with like the exact figure that backs up the thing you just asserted. That like It is very satisfying. I, I don't miss those opportunities. Uh, if that opportunity arises, I do take it from time to time. But it's really about like, don't feel like you have to engage with everybody, but identify those who are acting in good faith and who have a platform where it is worthwhile to rebut that criticism if there's a good rebuttal, or at least to engage them. Um, That's how I choose to handle when Twitter criticism comes my way. No, I think that's really great advice. I I guess I want to sort of hone in on on this idea of an outlier poll and then what what happens. And, you know, pollsters, let's be candid about it, 
it's not like we want to go out there with outliers because when we do, we know there's going to be incoming. We know people are going to say, oh, you're crazy. That doesn't match the average. And I do kind of feel like this is a problem in in the commentary about polling. And I also think part of it is a misunderstanding of what polls are that, you know, I've been having this sort of ongoing debate with folks for many years and how you should be looking at a poll. And I'm the snapshot guy. I'm the guy saying, this is right now. We are not making a prediction. We're, we're not in the 538 Nate Silver business. This is not a projection. I'm not, not saying it's going to be 11 points in Florida. I am not. All I'm saying is that's what we're finding right now at this moment in time after the first debate, after the president's COVID diagnosis. This is what people are telling us. And yet, no matter what, there's always a lot of people, a lot of very smart people who say it will not be 11. It absolutely will not. And therefore, that poll is wrong. And I'm like, that's not what a poll is supposed to be doing. So I'd love to get your take on just sort of both this thing about outliers and jumping on outliers, which is, like you said, our poll wasn't really an outlier in Florida. Yes, it's a big double digitally compared to other Florida polls that are showing Biden ahead by smaller margins. But in light of NBC News showing a national polling lead of 14 or, or a CNN poll saying nationally it's a 16 point lead for Biden, our Florida numbers could be in the ballpark given those numbers. Doesn't seem outliers to me, but yet that was the immediate reaction, even though when the national polls came out, I really didn't see such a such skepticism, if you will, um, of what well, the national part of that, I think, is that specific that it's the state of Florida. And I say this as a Florida woman, yeah. but we really hang on tight to our uh, yeah. our unbroken track record as being a state that loves to decide things by razor thin margins. So yeah, that yeah, yeah. Be, it could be because it's Florida. Yeah. Um, that, that was the poll that you all put out that got a lot of attention. But I, I think when it comes to outliers, Look, one of the things that we know went wrong with some of the polling in the UK in, I don't know if it was Brexit or if it was the election before Brexit, but there was a big election in the UK where there was catastrophic polling error. And when they did the postmortem, they found that one of the big problems was hurting, that you had pollsters that had numbers that were outliers, but they were actually, they were right on the money, but they were too afraid to release them because they differed from what the rest of the pack said. And so I will always salute a pollster that puts a number out there that is outside the norm, as long as it has been conducted with a good methodology uh, that they are transparent about. You know, there are some pollsters that will put numbers out there that are wacky and that like look unconnected from reality. And they're also kind of cagey about their methodology and you've never really heard of them before. And, you know, tread carefully there. But I think if it's if you're a major pollster like you all or there are other major university pollsters, big media pollsters, if you've got a number that's off or that seems like it might be off of the averages, still put it out there because you could be the first poll that shows a trend happening. Now, the, the unfortunate thing for someone in your position is the risk reward proposition is not great. If you're the first one out there on that limb saying it's Florida by 11, uh, and then suddenly five other polls come out saying the same thing. 
Nobody's coming around to give you a gold star two weeks from now to say, Doug, you did such a good job. You caught that movement in Florida. Good for you. And so, the, you know, it's like all downside and very little upside. Um, but I, I also want to come back to the point that you were making uh, earlier on, which is about pollsters incentives and our desire to be right. There is no, I think, internet dialogue about polling that frustrates me more than these pollsters are all trying to spin a narrative. Um, yes, partisan pollsters, when all of a sudden like an internal poll leaks from a campaign, yeah, they're trying to spin a narrative. doesn't mean that their data is wrong, but there's a communications objective to it. But for most pollsters, the media pollsters, the university pollsters, and frankly, especially some of us partisan pollsters who are out there in the free market competing for business, you don't win a lot of business by being wrong. You don't get a lot of business by giving clients bad information that misleads them or blows smoke and tells them everything is happy and dandy and then they find out that it's not. So we have a market incentive <laughs> to be as accurate as possible because being the pollster that calls it right can be very lucrative and being the pollster that calls it wrong can be very damaging. Frankly, that's why Gallup, um, you know, most people when they think of Gallup, they think of the Gallup poll. Um, but Gallup has an enormous consulting business behind it that does all sorts of corporate training and strengths analysis for employees. And they make tons of money globally doing that kind of thing. So it's not worth it for them to be in the business of putting out a presidential ballot test that could be wrong. And so in 2012, they said it was going to be Romney 49, Obama 48. Uh, it was not. That was wrong. And that was the last time Gallup touched that kind of thing. It's not because Gallup is bad, but they just sort of understood that there is real risk in being in the world of trying to predict elections. Um, if you're doing polling for Nike, for instance, I'll pick someone that's not my client. Nike's not my client. If I was doing polling for Nike and I came back to them and I said, 70% of Americans like the ads that you have done with Colin Kaepernick. There's no way to verify if I was right or wrong. I suppose if I was really off and they rolled out those ads and suddenly millions of people stopped buying their shoes, that would be a problem. But if if I say 70% of Americans like your Colin Kaepernick ad, but the actual answer is 60% or 65%, I, I'm, I'm probably never going to be held accountable. But if you are in the business of polling for ballot tests and I say 49% of people are going to vote for Joe Biden and in the end... 52% of people vote for Joe Biden. People might go, ah, look, your poll was wrong. So I just, I, you know, look, anybody who's in the business of polling horse races, my heart goes out to you and I, I am with you because it is the most high stakes thing. It is one of the only things in the entire world of polling, political or otherwise, where you are graded on your accuracy and there is a final exam. Most other poll questions, there's no final exam. Um, so pollsters want to get it right. And we are political pollsters held more accountable for our accuracy than pollsters in any other part of the market research world. I could not agree with you more. So many gray hairs as we get closer <laughs> and closer to election. It is so stressful. You are absolutely right. We're the only ones graded. No other social science field is under the microscope like we are. We put out our data. We try to get it right. And if we don't get it right, Boy, do we hear it. Ha having said that, let's talk a little bit about Gallup. You know, I think about what happened to Gallup and that saying there, but for the grace of God, go high. I mean, they really didn't do that badly in 2012. Yeah. They were off by five points, I guess, on the margin, right? I mean, it wasn't awful, but they were just on, they were on the wrong side. They had Romney. 
but they weren't that far off that you would say, what a disaster this poll was. Well, how awful it was. It really wasn't. And I think, and this is another topic I'd like to touch on with you, I think it's too bad that we don't have Gallup anymore doing the presidential election polling. I mean, I've said this to Lydia Saad as well over at Gallup, that it's too bad because they are the pioneers of presidential election polling. They have gold standard methodology. We need more pollsters with gold standard methodology to be polling on these really important elections. And, you know, well, and I not only do they have the gold standard methodology, but they have this amazing historical treasure trove of data. Yes. Um, one of my favorite, so, you know, in any election year, a big piece of what I do when there's not a global pandemic on is travel around and give talks to different organizations, company conferences that, that are just curious about politics and want to know. And one of the slides that I have been using this year, more for Zoom briefings, I suppose, is Gallup's, you know, they released their presidential job approval tracking, and they have tracked the job approval of presidents going back to Truman. It's amazing. It's an unbelievably great data set. And it lets you have the context to say, yeah, Donald Trump has hovered in this very narrow band. Considering how crazy the last four years have been, his job approval has barely budged. And yet, when you take a look at the job approval for any other president in the modern era, they tend to fluctuate a lot more. Um, it's useful context. And having the ability to go back that far historically is so valuable. So I, I'm with you. I miss having the Gallup data. But from a someone who is running a polling business and consulting business perspective, I completely understand why they have opted out of the, the horse race polling world. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. I just think it's too bad. And it is one of my concerns that's out there is that there are so many polls now these days. And that now, because there are all these different polls that are out there, people are relying much more on the averages, let's say, a, you know, real clear politics average. And just to be clear, I, uh, no pun intended, I was, uh, uh, you know, I believe in you know high quality polls, and if you want to look at an average of high quality polls, I think that's a good idea. I don't have a problem with that. My problem is that there's just a wild west of polling out there. Really, just everyone is throwing out polls, and you know, out of desperation, the poor polling consumer and 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 political reporters like, well. I don't know what to make of all these polls. I'm just going to take the average. And I think it's too bad because I think it can be misleading. And I think it's a mistake not to rely much more heavily on the gold standard pollsters. And, you know, I don't know what your thought, but it is my concern is that in addition to the things that you've mentioned about why pollsters could be wrong this time around about, you know, mail-in ballots and all of that, that there's just the fundamental things about there are things that we know that go into best practices for polling and things that are not best practices, you know, and, you know, it concerns me that there is a large amount of polling out there that are not best practices. And it's hard to, you know, expect your average consumer of news to go dig around and say, well, what are the weighting parameters that right. poll is doing? You know, that, that's a heavy ask. So I appreciate, I think 538, they incorporate pollster grades into their averages. And so if you're, you know, some fly-by-night operation that's just gotten started, you're not going to count as much. Um, so, you know, I, I know there's some, you know, controversy around that, but there, there are some tools out there. I do tend to like polling averages, even knowing that there might be some junk mixed in with the good stuff. Um, 
and I do so because I assume that the junk goes both directions, that they're that like, if the junk is all pulling the numbers one way, that's bad. But if there's junk that is getting it wrong in equal directions, then it's, it is also hopefully kind of coming out in the wash. Um, but, and the other thing that I, I like them for is trend lines. So I don't mind being openly critical of Rasmussen polling. I love Scott Rasmussen. He's not involved with Rasmussen polling. Uh, he's, he is separate from them. So I, I will defend his honor. But Rasmussen polling itself these days, you know, gets a lot of grief because they tend to have these like perhaps overly optimistic uh, takes for, for President Trump's job approval and such. And so I joked yesterday that, you know, Rasmussen came out with a poll that I think showed Biden up by like 11 or 12 nationwide. And it was like, at two Rasmussen, even <laughs> you have, have, are showing this. And so, again, do I think that Rasmussen is is right on the money? No. But I think that trend lines in how Rasmussen's data is moving is very interesting to look at and provides very useful context. And so while if I was building a polling average, would I include Rasmussen in that average? Probably not. But does it provide me with very useful information that Rasmussen went from being real sunny about Trump's prospects to now saying, nope, he's going to lose by 12 if the election were today? Like that is that is still useful information that I am glad that I have, and I'm glad is included in some of those polling averages. So I think those are really good points. And what I'm wondering is, is there any sort of methodological thing that, or transparency thing, or is there anything when you see a poll coming out that you say, you know what, I'm not going to pay attention to it just simply on the basis of X, Y, Z, or there's certain things, or sample size, for example, if you, is there a, a threshold where you say, you know what, I'm not going to look at a poll of 300, or is there something, certain standards that you have that you'll say, you know what, I just won't pay attention to that poll? I think there's so much focus on sample size, and I would much rather look at a poll of four, an N of 400, where those 400 are the right 400 than a poll of N of 2000, where it's the wrong 2000. And this is something, if I may just have a, a gripe for a moment, is I will frequently be in pitches where I am pitching a corporate client. And the number one thing most people think about polling quality is they think that sample size equals quality. And so I will be pitching against someone that is pitching an N of 2000 or 3000 study but it's coming from like an online panel that might be a little questionable. And they're, you know, they're able to underbid me while I'm saying, look, I'm only pitching you N of a thousand. Going up to 2000, you get some more subgroup analysis, but your overall margin of error only goes from like plus or minus three to plus or minus two. I, I don't think that that's, that you need that for this project, but I do think that you need a study of the right thousand people. Um, and so getting people to understand that like sample size matters, especially if you're looking at subgroups, like if you're going to take a poll and say, ah, yes, but left-handed Latino voters in Broward County say X, like, no, 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 you probably had two of them in your poll. Like, <laughs> let's walk away from that. Um, but I think sometimes there's almost too much focus on sample size with not enough discussion of sample composition and how uh, the poll was produced. I, I agree with you. I think that's a really great point, Kristen. You just mentioned at the very end about, you know, sometimes you have such a small sample size and the people make a big deal out of it. That's been my experience over the last few months is we'll put out all these questions and some great, interesting top line numbers, and then we'll put out subgroups. And sometimes our subgroups aren't the biggest subgroups. We don't really make much of it. But sometimes you'll see in the media make such a big deal out of a subgroup or we'll say, you know what, it's a large margin of error. I really wouldn't draw too many conclusions, but it's become a thing. 
I guess, to sort of just take apart every aspect of the horse race. Yep. And I, I also think that people, when they're, they're looking at these small subgroups and they're interpreting large margins of error, uh, I find people tend to only interpret them in one direction, whichever direction favors them the most, uh, which is is not good. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, I'm a contributor to Fox News, and I was on one of the Sunday shows a couple of weeks ago, and Fox put out a new national poll um, showing where the horse race was. And they released you know, some of their crosstabs, and their Hispanic vote crosstab had Trump uh, at 41% among Hispanic voters nationwide. That's a pretty high figure for him. Um, as I mentioned, you know, it could be an outlier, but there had been a couple of other polls coming out of Florida specifically that had shown Trump improving a little bit with Hispanic voters. So there was enough other data where I thought, I'm not going to just totally throw this out, right? It's a, there's a big margin of error, what have you. Um, and so on air, I mentioned it. I said, you know, one of the things that's an interesting crosstab in this poll is it has him at 41% among Latino voters. That would be a huge improvement if it held. Um, for him over where he was in 2016. And I got a lot of notes that were like, yeah, but margin of error on that is huge. True. Won't argue with you on that. But then people were like, it, it's probably, you know, mar within margin of error is, you know, 20 some percent, which is where he was last time. I'm like, that is correct. But also within margin of error is Trump at 52% with Latino voters. So I don't think that that's likely to be the case. But I feel like margin of error, sometimes it's, it's so important to think about in terms of the uncertainty you are facing with a number, but people abuse it to instead choose their own adventure with a poll. And they'll say, yeah, the poll says it's 40%, but margin of error says it really could be 30%. So I think it's 30%. No, 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 that's that's not really also how this works. <laughs> no, I think that's a really good point. You know, I know we're getting near to the end of our time and I didn't want to let it pass talking a little bit about just where we are in the, the polling world and in comparison to sort of 16, I have a, a very smart polling friend who's been texting me. He's like, you know, pollsters better get this one right because they can't afford to miss two in a row. That'll be it for polling. No one will ever believe it. And I remember you had earlier said you were concerned after the election and saying, oh my God, what does this mean? The end of the polling field. I mean, my overall take on 16 was that the criticism of pollsters was overblown. The national polls were right. Yes, there were some state polls that were off, but you know, I felt like, geez, it wasn't as bad as people have made it out. You know, I know Nate Silver's made the point that 16 wasn't as bad as other elections. So here we are just a few weeks out. I mean, I'm, you know, pretty confident that the pollsters that use good quality methods will be fine. But what's, what's your sort of take on how you're feeling about things right now with the polling world and the election? So I, I still feel a little bit of nervousness because one, as you mentioned, even if the polls actually are pretty good, if there are a handful of states where they are not for one reason or another, that's what will get the attention. Yeah. Um, and, and in 2018, I was a little bit guilty of this as well. You know, in, in 2018, the polls were all really suggesting Republicans were going to have a rough night. Um, and yet the day after the election, I was hyper focused on look at these public polls and how much they missed in Indiana and Missouri and in Florida. And they said the Democrats were going to win there or they'd be close. And instead, it was Republicans won by a touchdown or in the case of Florida, it was close. And gosh, like I just this seems the preponderance of polling was actually really good. And you, and as you mentioned, you're not going to get them all right. Um, you know, even a pollster doing the best job they can 
a certain number of their polls are just going to be outliers. They're just going to be, or they're just going to be wrong. That's just how this works. Um, so even I felt myself being guilty of that a little bit in 2018 of being like, I would give the polls a grade of a C overall. This was not good enough. And it was like, well, actually a lot of them were pretty good. Just a couple of states, the picture was off. Um, so I, I still worry. I worry very much about the perception of the industry. I worry that if it's we're wrong again, if we're considered to be wildly wrong again, does that further depress response rates? Does that have an effect on them? Because we've seen response rate dropping over the years, but that's more about technology and people's lifestyles. But do we reach a point where people just start saying, I think these pollsters are full of garbage. I don't want to talk to them. And that becomes more widespread. And then you take of that 6% response rate that Pew tends to find as the average, and you cut that in half because you're losing it. Those are the nightmare scenarios that like keep me up at night. Um, but I, I do think that the things that were wrong in 2016 in the state polls We've now had a robust public conversation about them. Are we doing enough polling in states so that we're catching late movement right at the end? Are we doing enough polling where we're making sure we're watching education levels to capture those non-college educated voters? It's not as though the polling industry got it wrong in 2016 and went, oh, too bad, and just moved along. We spent tons of time and effort trying to make sure that we don't do it wrong again. So what makes me nervous is not that we're going to repeat those errors, but that there are new battles to fight and we don't know what those battles are yet. Is there some new variable out there that if you've got the sample composition wrong on right-handed people versus left-handed people, you're going to get the ballot test off and we're not even checking for that. I mean, that's a, an exaggerated and goofy answer, but I remain nervous. And again, this gets back to the emotion versus reason. My reason tells me pollsters have done a very good job adapting to the problems from last time. And they're all seem to be telling a similar story. And so they're probably pretty close to reality. But I, I cannot shake the fear that there's something else out there that we're missing. And that we'll, after the election, have tons of robust discussion about it. We'll be talking about it for four years. But we don't know right now when it really matters what that is. But could that go in the other way? Could, could what we're missing? It absolutely could. So just in the same way that I mentioned, you know, margin of error works both ways. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about margin of error. I'm talking about you know, polling error, which is not the same thing. But if you look at APOR's report on the polling error over the last couple of cycles, it tends to oscillate back and forth. It's wrong in favor of Republicans one year, and then it's wrong in favor of Democrats the next year. There is no guarantee that just because the polls were off in one direction last time, that if they are wrong again, they will be off in the same direction. Um, so there is a chance that we are underestimating a Biden landslide. I and mean, that, that is as likely a possibility as the possibility that we are missing in the other direction. You know, I could go on for hours, uh, Kristen, but uh, I know that I need to sort of end it here. I can't thank you enough. This has been such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care, Kristen. Thank you for joining us on The Polling Perspective, a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with the Quinnipiac University Poll. Our podcast is produced by David DeRoche, Samantha Stella, and Mark Bouchard. For more information on The Poll, visit poll.qu.edu. For more information on our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at QU Podcasts and at Quinnipiac Poll. I'm Doug Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode.